This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. These are the words of God to his people in Leviticus 11.45, and they are very significant. God rescued his people who were in bondage as slaves. And then in light of this fact, he asserts his holiness and the responsibility of his people to be holy in turn. Now, we can clearly ascertain the gospel and the foreshadowed work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when we read through the book of Exodus. But there is a fundamental question and really a couple of fundamental questions that arise when we consider these themes of bondage and redemption. The Bible teaches that man is born in bondage to sin by nature because of the fall of Adam. And we also commit sin in thought, word and deed, which has plagued the world ever since. Uh, The good news is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only begotten son to redeem us through the shedding of his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Now, what do we do about the problem of evil in the interim. If God created us and he is holy, then why is there evil at all? Why did he allow man to fall into sin rather than keep him from it? And in light of the immeasurable evil in this world, is God at all culpable for not intervening and stopping it in its tracks? Like I said, these are big questions. We're going to tackle some of this today with Scott Christensen, who is the associate pastor of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas, and author of the book we'll be discussing called What a about evil, a defense of God's sovereign glory. Scott, so great to welcome you back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you. Thank you. This is really the perennial question, isn't it? Trying to reconcile the existence of God with the existence of evil. Why does this continue to be the one that just keeps coming up all the time, do you think? Well, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It, it has it has always been um, one of the great conflicts that humans have had to struggle with. And um, and so I think it is it is the biggest question that throughout history people have struggled with and uh, because pain and evil is very disheartening to our human existence. Right. Well, and the crisis of secularization, I know this is something you mentioned in the book, is something that has magnified this problem of evil. Can you address that? How do you see secularization impacting people's view of evil and the role of God in stopping evil or not stopping evil? Yeah, you know, it used to be that um, throughout, uh, certainly since the time of, of Christ, you know, with the influence of Christianity, particularly in Western culture, that people had resources to think about evil, and because they there was widespread belief in God, there was widespread belief in His control over the events of history in our lives, that we had resources to, to cope with evil. But really, since the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment tried to throw out God, and ever since then, we've seen Western culture push God to the periphery more and more, and as a result of that, people um, really have conflicted 
feelings about how to to cope with evil right. and uh and as a result of of that uh it, it makes the problem even more acute uh because we have cast aside the only way that we can really adequately address this problem which to many people that seems ironic that how can you have this good and powerful god and yet evil be in the world and yeah. yet without this good and powerful god we have no way to even grapple with the question in the first place. Yeah, you're totally right about that. So you've said this is all a question of theodicy, the attempt to justify God in the face of evil. And there are different ways that people have used to approach this. What are some of those ways historically that people have tried to address the question? Well, the most common way, uh, particularly among Christians, and that and and that's the approach that I take in my book is how have Christians responded to this problem? Um, you know, others, you know, secularists often deny evil. Uh, they deny God. They look at evil and they say, "Well, evil just proves that God doesn't exist." Right. And, and so the Christian has been faced with how do you respond to this this question? Um, and so the most common response is known as the free will defense. And uh, this goes all the way back in history, but it was recently revived um, in, in recent decades by philosophers and Christian philosophers and whatnot. And, and it's been largely adopted by most theologians. And it's the idea that God values the free will of human beings so much that he's willing to risk that humans would make choices toward evil in order to, um, you know, in order for them to also have the equal ability to choose good. Yeah. So, so the idea is that if you have free will, as it's defined by free will theists, uh, which include Arminians and open theists and another brand of theology called Molinism that has gained recent traction in, in, in recent years. The idea is that that we have the equal ability to choose good or evil, and that in order for us to be morally responsible, we have to have this kind of freedom. And in order for us to truly choose good, we have to have the freedom to also choose evil. So God... Um, allows us this freedom, and in doing so, he risks the fact that evil will take place. And, th- and that is the most common response right. to the problem of evil. Yeah, but that makes it sound um, like God's highest concern then would be man's freedom. It, exactly. And that's precisely what that, that, uh, that approach takes. It, 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 it values man's freedom above really, above his own sovereignty, his own glory, um, and his own uh, sovereign control over the universe and over history itself. And so the free will defense, I believe, is a very man-centered approach to the problem of evil and is not a God-centered approach. And so in my book, um, I present a variation of what is known as the greater good defense— and the greater good defense, though, has a, a wide number of uh, proponents. Uh, it largely is is associated with more of a Calvinistic approach to the problem of evil, and the idea is that God is in control of both good and evil. God decrees both good and evil to take place, and when he decrees evil, he always has some greater good 
that he intends for that evil that um, that otherwise that good would not occur unless that evil had occurred. Right. And, and so, so there's always some greater good that God has, even though we don't always know what those greater goods might be. Exactly. So I want to dive into that in more detail a little later on this hour. One of the things that I was thinking about, though, when I was looking through your book and you're talking about, you know, you just mentioned the free will defense and the natural law defense and some of the ways people have dealt with this problem of a holy God and yet the existence of evil. And I thought about Christian scientists, and that's kind of a really extreme example where they assert that evils like disease, sickness, suffering, they just appear to be real. And I thought, you know, that's a really extreme example because then you just have to deny what's right in front of you every single day of your life. And and it presents all sorts of problems. But isn't that really the crux of the problem, Scott, that man in his fallen nature wants to make himself the center of the universe and, and not deal with the issue of God's glory and God's purpose in the world he's created? That That's right. Even, even the way some people have framed the whole problem of evil, it, it's, it's, you know, for example, C.S. Lewis, and I'm kind of somewhat paraphrasing what he says, but but it's, it's the idea that God wants for human beings to be happy. We're not happy, so God must not uh, either care or he must not uh, have the power to ensure our happiness. Right. Well, that, that's a very man-centered way of framing the problem, and, and as if God has some obligation to, uh, to meet our standard of what is happiness for ourselves. So because it's a very man-centered way of even addressing the problem, and the greater good argument really looks at what, what brings most glory to God. That's important. Not necessarily what brings most happiness to man. Excellent point. We're going to pick up the discussion after this break. Scott Christensen with us. What about evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory is his book. We'll come back after this on Janet Meffer Today. Did you know that Bible List believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God and then they need the Bible. Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an 
insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I love talking about the Bible and digging into theological issues. And we're doing it this hour with Pastor Scott Christensen, Associate Pastor of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas, and author of the book, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. So before the break, we were discussing these theodicies that people have about how in the world you can reconcile the existence of God and the existence of evil. And you had said, Scott, before the break that you hold to what is called the greater good defense. I want to go through this because because you've outlined four points to your theodicy. God's ultimate purpose in freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to all his creatures, especially human beings who alone bear his image. What does that have to do with evil? Why start there with God's ultimate purpose for the world and the issue of his glory? Well, one of the issues that we have to face when, when, and, and, and when we're dealing with the problem of evil, we're dealing with a broad, broad issue. I mean, evil is pervasive in our world, and, uh, you know, and we see it every day. And, it's, and, you know, you talked about Christian scientists denying the existence of evil. Well, that's very rare. Yeah. Most people, even the, the most hardcore secularists, recognize that there is evil in this world, and they may tweak their definition of evil, but but they recognize that there are certain things in this world that bring that bring great pain and suffering that that cause moral indignation and so forth, and so it's it's pervasive. We we recognize it. We see it every day, uh, and so it to me it ties into the broader question of what is going on in the world. Period. What was God doing when He created this world? And the starting place really is with God. And and so the question that has to be asked is, did God have to create this world? Uh, he did not. God, God had no need to create at all. God was fully satisfied in his own Trinitarian being from all eternity past, you know, from our perspective. In fact, that's not even, even a proper way of of framing that that matter because God isn't even confined to time. Time is something that's part of the created construct that God created. Yes, and so God had no need to create, and so so we have to conclude that God created purely out of His own freedom, out of His own desire. And why did He do so? I believe that this consistent testimony of Scripture is that God created this world. He created image-bearing creatures, i.e. human beings, so that he could supremely magnify his glory to us as creatures, and really to magnify his glory to all of creation, but especially his image-bearing creatures, which are human beings. Yes. Not even angels, I believe, are the primary subject of God's glory, though they see his glory as well. But God primarily displays his glory in human history, dealing with human beings uh, as his image-bearing creatures. And so that's where we have to start. And so, you know, God created 
this world he could have created any way he wanted to. He could have created Adam and Eve in such a state that they would never sin, just like God himself does not sin. And we know that there are conditions in a future world in which that will be the case, where human beings will not sin, right? So yes. we know heaven is like that. We know the new heavens and the new earth is is such a condition. So why didn't God just make the world that way from the get-go? Well, and, uh, and so that raises this very important question. Yeah, it does. And when you look at what the Bible says about God's holiness and his perfect character, and you look at what the Bible says about sin, I know the Westminster Confession of Faith says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second cause is taken away, but rather established. And I know that's kind of a deep paragraph there that I've just read. But when you look at verses like James 1, 13 through 15, it talks about God is not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. First John 1, 5 says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. So one of the questions that comes up among people is how could sin even exist if God is perfect? How can it exist if God cannot let us into heaven unless we have our sins atoned for by Jesus Christ, how can the world be sinful? They really have a difficult time uniting those two concepts, which is kind of the the whole point of your book. But how do you deal with that? Sin coming into the world under God's gaze. Yeah. So, so my, the, the way I frame my theodicy is that God, God's, whole purpose in creating the world is to magnify his glory. Well, how does he do that? Well, when you think about it as as a Christian, how has God most magnified his glory? And it's very simple. We know it is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in his death, and really with his incarnation, because all of this is part and parcel of the person of Christ and what he came to do. So so God is most magnified in the redemptive work of the incarnate Christ who came to this earth to die, to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of those whom God has chosen to save and redeem from their sin. He rose from the dead to show his power over sin and death and judgment. And he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he will then come again and establish his kingdom forever. And, and so this is where God is most glorified, is, is in the redemptive work of Christ. Yet, redemption would be entirely unnecessary unless it had been preceded by something that needed to be redeemed, unless it had been preceded by a world that is has fallen into sin and evil and death and destruction and chaos. Yeah. Yep. And and so in order for God to supremely magnify his glory through the redemptive work of Christ, it necessitates that he designed the world to to fall. Yes. And I suggest in my theodicy that God is more glorified in a a fallen but being redeemed world than in a world that never needed redemption in the first place. Now this raises and the reason yeah. why. Yeah, go ahead. And the reason why is because when we look at the price that Christ paid, we look at 
the condescension that he underwent. And when we look at the glory of his person as he has become incarnated and offered himself uh, as this gracious, unbelievably gracious Savior, um, there is nothing greater that magnifies the glory of God than for us as his creatures to revel in the glory of what Christ did. And if he did not come to a world that was fallen, none of that would be necessary. There would be no need for him to become incarnated. There'd be no need for the cross and the resurrection and his subsequent exaltation back to his pre-incarnate glory. And so all of these things point to the fact that God purposed this world to be fallen so that he may magnify his glory supremely through Christ. And I believe there's no other world we can imagine in which God is more supremely magnified in the kind of world that requires a Redeemer like Christ to come and redeem this world. Very good. Now, I want to tackle some of the issues that come out of what you've just said, because clearly there will be people who have questions about this. For example, you talk about Felix Culpa in your book. This is the sin, as the Theopedia defines it, as the sin of Adam viewed as fortunate because it brought about the blessedness of the redemption. Now, there might be some people who think that way, but, but how do you interact with that idea? How should we understand that biblically? So, so yeah, this goes all the way back to uh, some scholars think Ambrose, uh, 4th century uh, church father, was the first one that came up with this idea of Felix culpa. It's a Latin term that means fortunate fall. And... Uh, um, uh, John Milton picks it up in his his great epic poem, Paradise Lost, and, and seems to reference this notion that it was better for the fall to have happened than, to, than for it not to have. And, and the reason why is because it occasioned the, 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 the bringing, the sending of Christ as the messianic redeemer of this fallen world. And so when we think about the storyline of Scripture, and I I try to tie all this in 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 later chapters in my book, we we see this this common storyline of creation, fall, and redemption. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that storyline, you have the, the, the perfect conditions of Eden prior to the fall. Then you have Adam and Eve who thrust the world into the crisis of the fall, so, and then that would be like this, this devolution, this, this uh, falling into this deep pit, if you will. And then long comes the Redeemer and brings about the work of redemption. So you have creation, fall, redemption. So you have this sort of U-shaped storyline, right? You have, at the front end, you have creation, then it dips down to the fall, and then it returns to creation. Now, if that were just simply the way to view the story so that re- the, the final state of redemption, the eternal state, was no different than the original conditions of the world prior to the fall, then we might ask the question, well, why did the fall happen in the first place? Mm-hmm. But I actually suggest something different. I suggest that, that the storyline is really J-shaped, so that, yes, the initial conditions of creation of Eden before the fall were very good, as Genesis tells us, but the conditions of 
the redeemed world are far better because of the crisis that we had to go through with this fall that brought about this great redeemer. And so the what, yep. fall- Hang on, Scott. We're going to come back. Scott Christensen, What About Evil is the book. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are going deep today into this question What about evil? It's the name of the book from Pastor Scott Christensen. And we are really digging deep into the Word of God, into this very important theology. How in the world do you reconcile the existence of God and the existence of evil? Probably the biggest question that human beings have. And yet, there are answers in the Word of God. Scott, before the break, you were talking about the storyline of Scripture really being J-shaped, and I wanted to let you finish explaining that for people. Yeah, so the idea of a J-shaped storyline is that you have the initial conditions of Eden prior to the fall that were very good, and then you have this crisis of the fall that causes the storyline to dip down below to the the low point of of the storyline. But then with the coming of Christ and the work of redemption and the final eternal state of his eternal kingdom uh, is actually greater than the initial unfallen conditions of Eden, because precisely the crisis that occurred and the price that Christ had to pay to redeem that world, and we have a greater appreciation for that final state because of the crisis that we ourselves experience as believers— Uh, if we have placed our faith in Christ, uh, we have a greater appreciation for redemption than if we had never needed redemption in the first place. Right. So So, when you're talking about a fortunate fall, then, would it be fair to say that you'd put this in a similar context to what Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, in that being sold into slavery and all the horrors that he went through at the hands of his brothers, God was using it for a greater plan. So we wouldn't be saying of the fortunate fall that sin was a good thing, because clearly it's not. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. So this is where we have, this is where we have multiple faucets to the problem that we're dealing with. Right. So for example, we have to make a distinction between what we might call God's moral will and God's sovereign will. So, yes, the fall violates God's moral will, right? So the sin of Adam was expressly in violation of God's moral command to Adam and Eve, and therefore it violated God's moral will. And yet God purposed that that very thing would happen as part of his sovereign will. And so often his sovereign will uh, is, is done in a way that, that incorporates a violation of his moral will. Probably one of the most powerful examples of that we find, for example, in Acts chapter 2, we, we find it again in, in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
and he speaks to, uh, I'm just going to go to that passage real quickly. He, he speaks to the Jews, and he is describing uh, Christ and, and Christ's work, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, right? So this is talking about God's sovereign will, Mm -hmm. his predetermined plan, right? He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So that's very interesting because on the one hand, Peter is saying that this is part of God's sovereign plan, his predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. And yet it happened at the hands of godless men, yeah. right? So you have God ordaining that which occurs at the hands of godless men. We have a similar thing in, in Acts chapter 4 where the, the church is praying to God. And, and as they pray, they say to him, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. So here again, you have the same notion that God uses uh, the actions of evil men with evil desires to accomplish his good purposes. And that's precisely what Joseph is talking about in, in Genesis Fifty twenty, when he says what you meant for evil, i.e. his brothers who sold him into slavery, having evil motivations behind their evil deed, yet God superintended those very same events, yet he had very good purposes for them. Yeah. And, and this is where we, where we can solve the problem of moral responsibility. Because God in his transcendent holiness and in his sovereign uh, oversight and transcendent oversight of, of the whole unfolding of history has the requisite wisdom and goodness to be able to ordain evil that ultimately has a very good purpose in his overall plan for the world, right. whereas human beings, when they... Uh, perform evil, it always comes from an evil motive. Yes. God can never have an evil motive for the evil that he ordains, nor does he directly cause evil to happen. He does not infuse an evil will in human beings, and so you have this tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And so there's lots of questions that we unfold <laughs> yes. in, in this whole debate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, here here's a question. I hate even asking this, but I know this comes up, and I know a lot of listeners will be curious about how you would answer this when they hear this question. You have some people who will refer to God as a divine child abuser. And this fits into the context of what we've been discussing here. For example, they would say, well, wait a minute. If God allowed sin to enter the world so he could be magnified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and find the culmination of his glory in the work of Christ, isn't that kind of like a father who throws his son on the train tracks only to jump in and save him at the last minute? Why did he throw the the son on the train tracks to begin with? It's not a perfect analogy, but the divine child abuser thing does come up in apologetics discussions. How do you answer that? Well, yeah, there's there's several things there. First of all, um, God would never ordain 
evil that did not have some weighty good that otherwise could not come unless that evil existed. And, and, and Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ is a primary uh, example of that. Here you have uh, perhaps the greatest evil that has ever been perpetrated, right? Because you have the only time in history in which a truly innocent man was maligned and murdered right. in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet God ordained that to happen because of the supremely greater good that comes out of that particular evil for the whole of the world. But the other issue that, that we have to recognize is that Christ himself voluntarily entered into this pact, if you will, with the Father, whereby being sent by the Father, he willingly embraced this very evil. I mean, uh, Hebrews tells us that that he, uh, for the joy set before him, despised the shame of the cross, despised the pain, despised the the utter humiliation that that he had to embrace, because he saw the great glory that God would receive in the salvation of of a vast people whom God would redeem as a result of his death and resurrection. And, and therefore, Christ fully embraced that. And, and, and to suggest that that is cosmic child abuse, is, <laughs> it completely misses the whole point of the death and resurrection of Christ. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I bring it up just because do, people do say this, and sometimes Christians will say, well, I don't really know what to say to that. You know, they're saying, well, you allowed sin into the world, but you didn't have to do that, Lord. So why did you have to kill Jesus? You could have just kept sin from being in the world. But again, that's the broader point. Now, something else I want to get to in a little bit more detail when we come back from this next break is is the passage in Romans chapter 9. Now, this is a really important passage, I think, for people to understand when we are examining the effects of the fall and sin in the world and evil in the world and God's glory and God's character and how it all ends up that God is most glorified in the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back with Scott Christensen talking about his book, What About Evil? right after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, here to tell you about the ministry of Preborn. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. You just heard a real-life testimony from a woman whose life was changed by the ministry of Preborn. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she almost always chooses life for her preborn baby. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. Preborn steps into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them choose life. The mission of Preborn is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save lives and impact moms and babies for the kingdom of God. Preborn leads the country in placing ultrasound machines and counseling women while also helping to lead them to saving faith in Jesus. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 7,000 women came to know the Lord. 
I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. <laughs> I was certain I was going to keep my baby forever. Would you join with us at Janet Mefford today to help preborn help women choose life for 350 babies by the end of January? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward life. One ultrasound session costs $28. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds, but any gift of any size will help. $100, $200, $1,000, or maybe you could even help buy an ultrasound machine for $15,000. But whatever you can give will help. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Again, call toll-free, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. What an important discussion we are having about evil and the character of God. Scott Christensen with us, Associate Pastor of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas. What about evil? Uh, such a good question. Now, I want to turn to Romans chapter 9, because you, you should go back and read the whole chapter for yourself. But I'm going to start in verse 15 and just read several verses to put this in context before we get Scott's take on this. Uh, when it says that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Then you skip down to verse 21 and it says, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory Glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. There's a lot to unpack there, Scott, I know. But how does Romans 9 fit into this theodicy that you're discussing in your book about God's sovereignty and God's glory in the salvation of sinners and the order of salvation and God's decrees? I know this is a lot to fit into just a couple of minutes, but can you tackle that for us and help us out with what we're to take from that passage? Yeah, sure. So it's important to recognize that God is glorified both in judgment and salvation, both in his justice and in his mercy. Yes. And I believe that one of the ways that God is supremely magnified in his mercy is in the contrast um, or in the backdrop of his justice. And, and often his mercy is magnified in the face of God's acts of justice. And so really the backdrop for what Paul is saying here is the incident in the book of Exodus, which is the, the, the seminal um, redemptive event in the Old Testament from which the rest of the Bible really builds on this sort of redemptive theme of God pulling his people out of slavery um, and delivering them with all these miraculous events and judgments that he brings against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And at the center of that, that judgment and deliverance that are contrasted, right? So, so God delivers um, uh, Israel through judgment, right? Not right. judgment of them, but judgment of Egypt, and in particular, Pharaoh. 
And so Pharaoh is highlighted in Exodus, and we see over and over again how the book of Exodus talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, right? He hardens his own heart, so yep. there's there's his own responsibility there. But simultaneously, we see parallel passages in Exodus indicate that it is God who hardens his heart. That's right. Why? Well, he quotes, so that I would demonstrate my power in you, right? The power of his judgment that, that comes against Egypt, you know, under normal circumstances, most people would relent after the first set of <laughs> plagues had, yes. had come against Egypt. But Pharaoh continually hardens his heart. Why? So that God could continually display his miraculous power of judgment. And in the light of that severe judgment, suddenly we see God deliver his people and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. And I think we have to take all of that at face value. This is real miraculous stuff going on here in history, and God does it to magnify his mercy. And so the contrast that Paul is drawing here is that God chooses to whom he will harden, and he chooses whom he will show mercy to. And in doing so, he actually magnifies his mercy. Um, So God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So he endured with much patience, as it were, Pharaoh, uh, you know, over and over and over again, and, and, and finally brings his judgment against him. But why? So that he, verse 23, would make known the riches of his glory— upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared uh, beforehand for glory. Yes. And, and so the idea is, and, and what is implicit in this notion is that, why did God choose to harden Pharaoh but deliver his people? Right. His people did nothing to deserve deliverance. Right. It is totally an act of God's free mercy that he delivered his people Israel from bondage. He didn't have to do that. Um, and yet, in doing so, his glory is magnified precisely through the judgment that the Egyptians experienced, the same kind of judgment that the Israelites themselves could have experienced if God so chosen to allow them to be judged for their own sinful, stubborn hearts, right? right? Just like Pharaoh. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot more to unpack there, but I believe that Primarily, what Paul is trying to do is to show how God magnifies his glory and mercy in the face of judgment that we all deserve, ultimately. Sure. And yet, because of his mercy, he truly, you know, freely chooses to save some. Amen. But not all. Well, and here's the thing. The gospel is offered to all clearly, and that's why we're to go out and fulfill the Great Commission as believers. But when we're talking about evil, it seems to me that God, a simple way of saying it, God dealt with evil. I mean, when people say, why doesn't God deal with evil? Why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he stop 9-11? Why didn't he stop my child from dying? Or whatever it happens to be. Why didn't he stop the pandemic? Whatever it is, God dealt with evil on the cross, 
for all time. And we are awaiting the end of all things and the end of human history and Christ's return. We understand all of that. But how do you drive that home to people who wrestle with evil to assure them that even though it doesn't look like it right at this moment in your own life because of your troubles, that yes, it is the case that God dealt with evil and all you have to do is look at the cross to see that. Yeah, I, I think part of it is is recognizing that none of us should escape the judgment of God. And really, God deals with, with evil in two ways. He deals with it in the conventional display of his justice, either in temporal judgments or ultimately in eternal judgment, so that no, no evil in the history of the world will ever go unaddressed, ultimately. Yes. God either deals with it in the cross or he deals with it in eternal judgment. Um, or even in, in temporal judgments as well. Yeah. But the point is is that, that God's glory is magnified in, the, in mercy, especially when we recognize that we did not deserve that mercy, and yet He promises it to us, and He promises to redeem all of the suffering that we experience in the present. You know, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 14, 4, 17, where he says, this momentary light affliction, that, that we're going through as believers in this present age is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, right? And, yeah. and that glory speaks of ultimately God's glory being magnified in our glorification and in the removal of all of the suffering and evil that we experience in this life. So that we have this promise because of His mercy that indeed there will be an end to all of our suffering and pain in this world. It's a promise yes, it to is. every believer so that God's glory would be magnified. Yes. And, and, you know, I think mercy obviously is is a wonderful thing and none of us deserve it. But on the issue of justice, that's also, as you say, a part of God's glory and a part of God's character. All of us will get justice in the final analysis uh, except those who put their trust in Jesus Christ get justice because Christ took the punishment that we deserved. So it's not as if God overlooks anybody's sin. It's just you're either in Christ and he took the punishment for your sin or ultimately you will bear the punishment for your own sin for eternity. I mean, this is ultimately right. a great way to say this is why you should trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, because there's a way out of the punishment because God so loved the world. And that's good news. That's right. That's right. And it's important to recognize that God never sweeps evil under the rug. Right. Right. It, the evil that, that, that he deals with in our lives, as for those who have placed their faith in Christ, is all dealt with in Christ. Christ took that punishment. Christ absorbed that evil, and he took the wrath of God upon himself, uh, who experienced the equivalent of, a, of an eternity of, of judgment, uh, on himself so that we would be freed from having to experience that judgment ourselves. Amen. That is his grace. That is his mercy. And that's what we cling to as believers. I love it. Thank you so much, Scott Christensen. The name of the book is What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. So good to have you here, Scott. Thanks a lot for being with us. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. All right. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. Always great to have you with us. Hope you can join us for another broadcast next time. Until then, God bless. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.